We're starting a new series, um, Righteousness by Faith, to kick off the new year. Um, and uh, we're going to dive deep into this topic and, by God's grace, also make it relevant to a lot of what is going on in the world today. Um, our scripture reading, um, as was read so wonderfully earlier, comes from Titus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward men, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Our message today is entitled, Righteousness by Faith. And this first installment is Salvation 101. Alex, Salvation 101. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your grace. And now, Lord, once again, I ask that you just make me a nail on the wall. And Father God, upon that nail, you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Today, Father, we need to hear a word from the throne room of grace. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, um, go to the book of Acts, the 16th chapter, and we're going to go through a story that really deals with salvation in a nutshell. There's a lot to unpack, um, so we'll move quickly through the first part of the story, but I do want you to get the context of this story. It's one of my favorite stories, so I wish I had more time on the story, but um, we have to get to some other stuff. Acts 16 and verse 16 says this, and it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So there was a young lady who had the ability, it seemed, to predict the future. There were men who controlled this girl and made money off of the fact that people would come and ask her for like a fortune-telling reading, right? So, uh, you know, nowadays you can go places and they have tarot cards and all this kind of stuff. Most of the time, it's really just a scam. But as Christians, we're wise and know not to play with that stuff. Somebody ought to say Amen. You don't need to worry about your horoscope and all this kind of stuff. Um, there aren't 12 types of people in the whole world. You know, oh, you're a Virgo. You're just like me. They could be two totally different people. All of a sudden, they find out their birthdays are similar and they're the same person, right? But this young lady made them a lot of money. Verse 17, the Bible says that the same followed Paul and us, as Luke speaking here, and cried saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. So she, came, she began to follow Paul around and shout this out and spoke the truth, right? It's the truth. These men are the servants of the most high God. They show unto us the way of salvation. Literally, that was the truth. But look at what happens. Verse 18. And this did she many days, but Paul being grieved turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And when her master saw, look at how this thing get changed, turn, turns here. When her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the ruler. So when these guys realized, wait a minute, they cast out the demon. The girl can't help us anymore. How, how did she do it before? Well, it's not that she really can predict the future. The devil doesn't know the future. Somebody ought to say amen. But the devil can influence the future. So the devil can tell you something's going to happen and then work to make it happen so it seems he predicted the future. Right. So when the demon went out, these guys were upset. They grabbed Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace, verse 20 says, and brought them to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive neither to observe being Romans. They didn't realize at this time that Paul was also a Roman. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ripped their clothes off, rent their clothes off, and commanded to beat them. Paul was preaching the gospel, and as he's preaching the gospel and setting people free, uh, his, uh, they, they grab him before casting the demon out of this girl who was being abused and used by these men. They're so angry, and when the spirit of the enemy is aroused like this, persecution comes, and they grab Paul, they beat him, they take him into the center of the place, and here you have Paul uh, being beaten in front of a crowd and by a crowd. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. It was the jailer's job that they not escape, who having... Uh, received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And so what he did was he took them and there was an inner room in the prison. So it was like high security because to break out of that room, you'd only break into somebody else's cell. Are you getting this? Right? So the room, there was a room inside all of the other cells. And so that's where they put them. And they put them in stocks so that they were, their hands and feet were locked in. And it, well, they didn't have handcuffs like we have today. So they had big wooden stocks. And they put them in the stocks so they couldn't move. <coughs> now, most of us, if this was our lot, we wouldn't be very happy, would we? In fact, a lot of us would be in there complaining, Lord, why you have me up in this prison like this? Now, this ain't even right. I was just preaching the gospel like you told me to do. And now I'm up here locked up in prison. And the prison was smelly. Can you imagine? It's the inner room. It gets no air. They don't clean. They didn't have sanitation. There was no toilets, no sinks. Can you imagine what that room smelled like? Can you imagine the vermin that was in that room? And here he is trapped, Paul, for preaching the gospel. And look at his reaction. This is a 2024 reaction. This is all we ought to do. Look at verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas did what? They prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. They were in there, and in the stench, in the darkness, without a, without a breeze, they didn't complain. They praised God. What if in 2024, no matter how bad the situation gets, we make a decision that we are going to praise God? How different will our life be this year if when trial and tragedy comes, when difficulty falls upon us, rather than retreating into murmuring and complaint, what if we charge forward praising God? Because what's powerful is it isn't just that Paul and Silas 
prayed and sang, it's that the other prisoners heard them. And Spirit of Prophecy tells us that the other prisoners had never heard any word positive or song come out of that cell. And when God is praised, church, things happen. Verse 26 says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. The whole prison, the jail starts to rock, starts to shake, and immediately all the doors swung open, bam, and everyone's bands were loose. This wasn't a regular earthquake. It's not just that the building shook because somebody had to unlock the doors. Somebody had to loose all of the, all of the shackles. Somebody had to let them free. When the, when the prison shook, it was because a spirit of liberty had entered that prison. Here's where the key antagonist in the story comes up, the jailer who they had given charge to in verse 27. The keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. The jailer who was given charge over them wakes up, rubs his eyes, he walks out, every door is open, all of the shackles and stocks are open and empty, and he realizes everyone can run free. And the penalty for someone given charge over prisoners like that for letting them go free is death. So rather than succumb to the indignity of a public trial or a mock trial and the torture and the public death, he just grabs his sword and he's ready to fall on it. Let me tell you something, this year, church, this is the year that you ought to keep your sword for fighting the devil. Don't turn your sword on yourself. The sword is the word of God. He draws his sword. He was worried that everyone had left. And verse 28 says this. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Here's what's deep about that. It was just Paul and Silas. It was just two of them. And yet Paul is speaking for all of the prisoners. See, I mean, when Paul speaks, he speaks for everyone. He said, listen, we're all here. In fact, I can imagine some of the prisoners are probably still in shock. The whole place starts shaking, everything falls off. They're probably like, whoa, I'm not sure I want to run just yet. Like, I'm not sure what's going on. Everybody's still in place. Verse 29, then he called for a light. This is the jailer now. Sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. The man who had made sure that they were locked up, who probably added a few licks to them, who told them that they would never get what they want, who probably told them how little food they would get, the man who probably only added to their cruelty, now he comes trembling and shaking. He falls down before Paul and Silas and asked the key question for our sermon today, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice now they're not prisoners, they're sirs. There's respect on them because Paul could have let them die. In fact, I hate to say it, but some of us, like that scorpion story, um, you know, you'd have been like, look, that brother wasn't good to us. Let's just get out of here. But like the story, the nature of the Christian, the scorpion story, now I have to admit, I wouldn't have never stuck one finger in the water there. I would have stuck a stick in or something maybe, but that's about it. 
But our nature must be to love even those who would sting us. It is the most difficult aspect of being a Christian. At, the, at GYC in, in, in Portland, my subject was on, on, on social justice, and I did the seminars on social justice. And, and, and one of the points I had to make is, uh, being African-American, if you do not learn that no matter how someone treats you, you love them like Christ does, you cannot be a Christian. No matter how much prejudice, no matter how much difficulty you face, it is your, your duty as a Christian to love even your enemies. So that question is a powerful question. What must I do to be saved? That's why this message is called Salvation 101. We're going to go to basics because there are a lot of folk come to church and don't really understand what it means to be saved. So as we go through righteousness by faith, we're going to deal with all of that. So first, the first question I want to answer is what is salvation? Um, it comes from the Greek word soteria. Uh, it means to be rescued and delivered. The broader Greek definition includes restoration to a state of safety, soundness, health and well-being, as well as preservation from danger of, or of destruction. So when this man asks, what must I do to be saved? He's saying, listen, what do I need to be restored to safety? What do I need to be rescued from my current condition? He realizes in a moment, the jailer, that he is on a one-way course to, to death. He almost took his own life. And when he sees the kindness of Paul and Silas, he sees Christ in them. He quickly realizes, I am in trouble. What do I need to be rescued? Isn't that interesting? Paul and Silas weren't the ones who needed rescuing. Somebody ought to say amen. They were in the prison more free than the prisoner, uh, than the prison uh, jail uh, 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 leader. The warden was more in prison than they were. Why? They were only imprisoned by walls. He was in the prison of his sin. And that is the lesson. We all must understand that if we go against what God says, we leave ourselves trapped in a place where the final outcome is death and destruction. So the biblical defi definition is to be delivered from sin and its consequences. Somebody ought to say amen. That's what it means to be saved. It means to be delivered from sin and from the consequences of sin. We'll talk about what that means here in a second. Look at the, some verses we'll go over. Romans 6.22 says this, But now being made free from sin... And become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. And here's the kicker. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If sin is a job, the paycheck you get is death. Don't matter how much fun you have at work. I mean, if sin is your job. Because when the payday comes around, you're not getting a W-2. You get death. Why is that? Because sin, as we're going to see, separates us from God. And when you are separated from God, God is the giver of life. When you are separated from God, you separate yourself from the source of life. If you separate yourself from the source of life, by default, death is the outcome. Now, look at this. John 5 and verse 24 says this. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not pass into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. When you believe the word of God, as we are going to talk about in this series, when by faith you hold on to these promises, right now you pass from death into life. Jesus says, he that has me, he shall never die. That means that when you visit a funeral of someone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand what you are watching in the spiritual realm is a power nap. Because the second death will never touch that individual. That means on, uh, when Jesus returns, that person is going to get up. Because when you are saved, you pass from death to life. Romans 3 and verse 23 says this. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is why we all need saving. So then the next big question is this one. What is sin? Right? We talk about sin. We talk about sin all the time. Well, what does the Bible define sin as? 1 John 3 and verse 4 says this. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law. For what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is the act of breaking the law. Which law? It is the Ten Commandment law. How do I know that? Because they said, if you read Paul, Paul says the law was nailed to the cross. Which one? The handwriting law. Which law was handwritten by a man? That was the law of Moses. That's what was nailed to the cross. The Ten Commandments were written by God's finger in what? Stone. It's permanent. Sin is the transgression, the breaking of that law. Romans 4 uh, says this, for where no law is, there is what? No transgression. If there's no law, there's no transgression. Why? Because sin is when you break the law. So some people say, well, the law is done away with, don't worry about it. But if the law is done away with, don't worry about it, sin is done away with at the same time. So the law can't be done away with like that. So let's look at the definition of sin. Sin is... An immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. The Hebrew word chata means to miss the target or to lose the way. The Greek word harmatano is defined as miss the mark, err, or do wrong. In both definitions, in the Hebrew and the Greek, it means to miss the mark. Now, sin is when we transgress God's law and, de and depart from his intended path. As sin separates us from God, it separates us from the source of life, as I said earlier, and from the only one that is immortal. Who has immortality? Only God does. That's why when people die, they don't just go straight to heaven or hell. They don't inherently have immortality. But sin is what happens when you violate God's law. Transgression is the actual act of violating the law. And iniquity, this is important, Iniquity is the dirtiness that lives in you when you have engaged in sin by transgressing God's law. Iniquity is the residue that happens when you choose to repetitively sin, when sin becomes habitual. It becomes transgression. It goes from transgression where you're just doing it. It goes to iniquity where it becomes a part of you. Why is that important? Because when sin goes to iniquity... Iniquity speaks to the effect of sin on the character. When you choose to live a life of sin, and there are people who choose to live one, 
They say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to live the way I want to live. Or there are Christians who secretly have a whole secret sin life. They spend time in the no-tell motel and hide their sin from the church, not realizing they can't hide their sin from God. And as you have these secret sins that you hide away and it becomes a part of you, it messes with your character. And remember, character is the only thing you get to take with you to heaven. We've talked about the seal of the living God in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. It's the seal of the living God is placed on the frontal lobe of the brain. The frontal lobe is where the character sits. When you hold on to sin, when you are not willing to repent of it, to give it up, to surrender it to God, it begins to reform who you are. And so rather than becoming more like Christ, you become more like the world, more like the enemy of Christ. Because the law reflects God's character. That's what the Ten Commandments is. It is a reflection of God's character. That's why when I talk about the, the, the frontal lobe, I talk about the frontal lobe being like the most holy place in the sanctuary message, like the most holy place, what sat in the most holy place, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, what was inside of the Ark, the Ten Commandments. That's why David says, thy law have I hid in my heart that I what? That I might not sin against thee. It is, the law is God's character, but it's also like a mirror. When I, Eric Walsh, look at the holy law of God, I see my shortcomings, and it reminds me of my need for Christ. When I really contemplate God's law, I go to my knees agonizing, asking God to continue to work on me. And if you, don't, if you doubt it, I don't have time to go through all of these, but here it is. All of these verses show you that what God is on one side and is described as is what the law is described as. And if you take the time and go through this, you will realize that the law is God's character. It is a reflection of who God is. And we are called to keep the law, as we'll get to that in a later, later serpent. We are called to keep the law because by keeping it, we gain the character of Christ. We become more like him. Now, the kicker, spoiler alert, is we do not have the power in ourselves to keep this law. So in order for us to develop Christ's character and be obedient to his law, we must be filled with his spirit. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. And here's what sin does. This is how it changes the character, messes up the world. It says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that, you, that he will not hear. What does sin do to us? It separates us from God. I do talks for young people. I, you know, I talk about the, the, the pop culture and all the things that they get into. Let me tell you something. It's interesting. This comedian Cat Williams, and I hope you've never heard his comedy, but he's been on Shannon Sharp's podcast, and he has been coming out and roasting all these famous people, talking about how he and one of the biggest rappers went to an Illuminati meeting, and they were telling him what he would need to do to be super famous and, and all this kind of stuff, and he's like, like snitching on everybody. I don't know if what he's saying is true or not. I will say this. In order to be famous, you have to give some part of yourself over to this world. And many give themselves over directly to the enemy. That you can read, if you want to read the book of uh, uh, A Trip into the Supernatural by Roger Renault, I talk about all the time. You can read it, and he talks about that from when he worshiped the devil himself or worshiped the demons himself. I say that to say this. 
You can't just listen to everything the world is putting out. You can't just watch everything the world is putting out and it not affect your character. It, it, it will bring spirits into your home, into your heart. And as these dark spirits, these sp sinful spirits, rebellious spirits come into your mind and heart, they separate you from God. That's why so many folk can't stand coming to church. Because all week, and sometimes for months on end, they are only exposed to these worldly spirits. They don't want to be where we are asking and inviting in the Holy Spirit. Sin separates you from God. So there's some people who say, well, I don't need God because there's no sin in the world. So one of the things, when, as, I was, as I was studying for this, I said, one of the things that you got to really look at is ask the tough question, is there really sin in the world? Does sin really exist arbitrarily? Because I'm going to show you what some folks say about this in a second. Is there evidence of sin in this world? And from a scientific perspective, there absolutely is. Right? I, I can tell you as a physician that the, the, the rise of pandemics in general is a statement that the world is in trouble, that man is not in control, that there is a force in this world that drives towards death. That, that's literally what a pandem pandemic is. It is literally a, 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 an infectious agent that is designed or, 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 or works to take life. That is evidence to me that sin is in the world. But let's look at this. Man, as man becomes more advanced, he at the same time becomes more savage. Isn't that interesting? If there was no sin in the world, would you have the technology to put people on the moon, rovers on Mars, and yet have all these people starving? There are countries that are, put, that are going to the moon and don't have proper sanitation for their people in their countries. One of the evidences of sin is that man can't take care of his own. In fact, rather than that, man is guilty wholesale across the world and throughout history of butchering his own. Man can produce more than ever, yet more are starving today than ever. There's an ever-increasing violence. I read an article the other day about all these serial killers from outside the United States. They had to exclude America. I guess the article would have been too long. And they were going through all around the world, Europe, South America, Africa, all the serial killers. I was shocked. If sin was not in the world, what is driving people to do things like that? What makes someone do a mass? We just had another mass shooting in the last couple of weeks. If there's no sin in the world, what drives these things to happen? If we are really evolving, how does any of that work for evolution? In fact, it's the opposite of evolution, I would argue. So Romans 8 says this, verse 18 um, through uh, 20 and 22, uh, through, uh, and 20 through 22 says this, for I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to com be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And here's the line, the punchline. Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Why does creation groan? Because sin entered the world. And when it did, can you imagine what it would have been like for Adam and Eve? 
everything was perfect in the garden. They sinned, and all of a sudden, the flowers began to grow thorns. The beautiful bugs that flew around now landed on them and stung them. Oh, can you imagine the first time they saw a, 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 a big cat run down and jump on an impala and rip it to shreds? All of that is evidence of sin. All of creation groans. The world itself rocks and reels under the weight of sin. That's why there are natural disasters and earthquakes. God never designed the world to be like this. God never designed for death to exist. Here's what Ellen White says, letter 22, 1900. She says this, we may choose God's way and live. We may choose our own way and know that sin has entered into the world and death by sin. When the earth was created by the Lord Jesus, it was holy and beautiful. God pronounced it very good, Genesis 1:31. Every flower, every shrub, every tree answered the purpose of its creator. Everything upon which the eye rested was lovely and filled, with the, filled the mind with the thoughts of love for the creator. Every sound was music in perfect harmony with the voice of God. But a change has come. Sin entered the world. She goes on and says, the sin of man has brought the sure result, decay, deformity, and death. Today, the whole world is tainted, corrupted, stricken with mortal disease. The earth groaneth under the continual transgression of its inhabitants thereof. The world groans under our sin. Is it true? Well, objectively, you can look at the condition of the world. Human impact has pushed Earth into an uh, Anthropocene, scientists say. New study provides one of the strongest cases yet that the planet has entered a new geological epoch. And you, we were watching the documentary where they mentioned Loma Linda and Adventist um, on Netflix, um, the twin study one. And they get to the part where they start talking about the, um, uh, how, you know, what, what they do to the fish and stuff and the animals to, so that people can eat animals. I mean, it is, it is heart-wrenching. One farmer was a chicken farmer. The man gave up farming chickens. He said it was too cruel to farm chickens. The way they would fight and scratch each other because they had no space and then they'd get infections and, and then, then they'd sell the chickens infected. And the man gave it up and now he grows mushrooms instead. I thought it was interesting. He went from chickens to mushrooms. The universe is very slowly dying. This is a Forbes article. The universe is very slowly dying as scientists helplessly look on. Like they act like they could stop this from happening. Like that's the arrogance of mankind. It's, not gonna, it's gonna take billions of years for that to happen. But the point is, if sin had not entered the world, the world would have existed as it was forever. In fact, it would have only gotten better and better. If you look at the laws of thermodynamics, if you look at physics itself, you look at the concepts like entropy, you understand that the world is not evolving, it's devolving. When we, I should have put a picture of it here. When we went to Australia, they had a giant uh, wombats. I mean, big like this, like big, like frightening looking things. They had this fossils of these massive wombats. Today, the wombats are this big. If we were really evolving, if the world was getting better, if sin was not in the world, would you really go from that giant wombat to a little baby wombat? God has given evidence, objective evidence, that the world is in a terrible state. When you turn on your news and you hear of the war and you hear of the conflict, when you see the violence, all the things that you see are constant reminders that the world is in a state God will not accept. In fact, 
When the world reached a position like it is in now, during the time of the antediluvians, before the great flood of Noah, God said, I can't dwell with man anymore. And that's where we are. That is the consequence of sin. I'm, I'm making a case because there are people who don't think they need a savior. But I want to make the case that you need a savior because you not only are a sinner, you live in a world that has been destroyed by sin. Which raises the question, am I a sinner? Here's what Romans 5 and verse 12 says. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Have you sinned? We've all sinned, the Bible says. There are no big eyes and little you. There's some people who kind of put up their nose like they're better than other folk. We have all sinned. Now, here's where it gets interesting. How is it that by one man, everyone says, well, Eve is the one who sinned. Eve was the one who, or she'd sinned, but she was deceived. Adam. Sin is a greater sin because Adam chose to go along with what Eve did. By one man, sin entered the world. Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before prove both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. How many are righteous? The Bible says, no, not one. Inherently, nobody is righteous. And you're going to see that this is the teacher. They want to teach our children now that they are inherently divine, inherently good. Romans 3, 11 and 12 goes on. It says, uh, there is none that understands. There's none that seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if this is the case, you need a savior. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. So somebody, as the definition says, somebody needs to come along and rescue you. If not, the natural course of your life would be death. And that's what the world wants. They want you to think, well, you just live, you party as hard as you can, and then you die, and that's it. But if there are no sinners, then there's no need for a savior. And I want to submit to you that this is the spirit of Antichrist, and this is what the world wants us to believe so that Christianity itself can die. Because I say it all the time, unlike every other religion in the world, Christianity is unique. Every other religion in the world, you must work yourself to, into nirvana. You must work yourself into paradise. You must work yourself into an afterlife. You must be reincarnated enough times that you finally get your karma right so that you live a good life and so that you get elevated. Only in Christianity, it says, you have no hope in and of yourself. And this is a juxtaposing point. And we are at a time in Earth's history where there is a war going on over this idea. Let me show you. This is from the gurus. And it says, we are not sinners. This is um, from the Kawis Hindu monastery. I want to read this to you. Because many people are going into Eastern religions. Here's what it says. The idea of redemption is not really the case in Hinduism. Being, being already exists deep in the soul. Part of us is becoming, getting more refined, more spiritual. Get into the essence of the soul through meditation. Find that part of us already one with God. Now you're supposed to find that inside of yourself. No one has to redeem us. You hear that? Divinity is within. 
We just have to find it. Hinduism today publishes desk October, November, December 2012. You and this listen, here's what's deep. This as they pulled religion out of our out of our society, as evolution has been taught to our children, as the movies and Hollywood have ridiculed and criticized Christianity, a void has been left in a lot of people. And you know what they're filling the void with? This stuff. It's the wisdom of the East, the yoga classes, meditation. I hear Adventists. Oh, you should be meditating. The only meditating I'm doing, I tell them, is on the Word of God. I'm not emptying myself for nothing. From Islam, and this is interesting. I've read the Quran, and here's what the, 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 Islam, the 10 things Muslims believe about sin. Several years ago, a sign outside a Toronto mosque bore the message, everyone welcome, and no one told he is a sinner. What Muslims believe about sin may explain why the Christian concept of atonement is often rejected. So I can't get too deep into this, but I did want to point this out. Because basically, in Islam, there's a belief in fitra, which means you're born pure. Where David says, I, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Islam says the opposite. Except Muslims admit that maintaining a sinless life in the long run is impossible. In other words, the state of fitra does not last. Look at this. Except for Jesus. Isn't that powerful? Muslims believe that Jesus did live a sinless life. So I started doing some research into it and looking into the Quran, and it doesn't say it directly, but when you read it, most, the, the, the prophet Muhammad, the, Noah, and all the other prophets all had to ask forgiveness in the Quran, not Jesus. That little nugget of truth is left, that Jesus lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. Isn't that powerful? And you can find that in Islam. So there, now, the idea of being a sinner is, is watered down. But even in Catholicism now, Pope Francis made the statement, we all become sinners, but we are fundamentally saints. If everyone is fundamentally a saint, why is the world in this condition? And, in, and remember, in Catholicism, when someone actually becomes a saint, you can pray to them. They work miracles for you. So this is going back to that Hindu concept of your inner divinity. I hope you guys are getting this. That in fact you become a sinner. That's not what the Bible teaches. David says he was born in sin. Of course, there's evolution. It teaches there's no sin. If there, you know, there's no God, so there's no sin. So no matter where you turn in the world, it leaves you in a place where Christianity is unique. We're unique because we believe that we need a savior. But like I said, if I had time, I could go on and on about the evidence of that this world is in trouble and that this world is in need of a redeemer and a savior. And so what they tell our kids now is don't worry about all of that. Just follow your heart. This is what they teach your children. Follow your heart. If you follow your heart, you get everything you want. I'm going to tell you something. I've followed my heart a few times. That, that, it didn't work out so good. You need to follow the word of God. Look at how deep this is, what they give to the kids. This is from, I forget which movie this is, but the guy's name is Ernesto de la Cruz, the, the character. Anybody know what movie this is? Encanto. No? Coco, 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 the other one, um, which is about the dead and going to visit the dead. But look at what he says. This is, this, is, this is what your children are being taught. The rest of the world may follow the rules, but I must follow my heart. What is sin? It is the transgression of the rules. It is the breaking of the law. So you sit your child down in the beautiful music and a wonderful animation, and you don't realize your child is being indoctrinated to believe that they can follow their heart 
and reject the laws of God. Because the first lies are being retold. And you gotta, if you're going to understand salvation, you've got to understand what Satan is really trying to do. You've got to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than, all the, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. First thing down, rule. Here's the rule. And it's a simple rule. Just don't eat from one tree. There may have been hundreds, maybe thousands of trees that him to eat from. Can you imagine how many varieties of mangoes they had? And they didn't have seasons. We got to Jamaica right after mango season. It was painful, right? Couldn't find a mango anywhere. They had mangoes, all of them. And he said, just one tree, don't eat it. That's the rule. Look at verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She understood that part of the rule. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. She understood the rule. But the serpent gave her two lies, a one-two punch. First, don't worry, you won't really die. The wages of sin is what? Death. If you, live, if you burned in hell forever, as many people teach, you would actually never pay the wage for sin. That's how you know that doctrine is a false doctrine. But here's the second lie. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, when your eyes shall be open, your eyes shall be open and ye shall be as what? As God's. Knowing good and evil. You see how that comes full circle? Goes all the way back to what they said? The divinity is within you. It goes all the way back to the first lie. Salvation, therefore, is first and foremost, you must reject these lies. Why? Because you got to make a decision if you think you can actually trust yourself. Can we trust ourselves to save ourselves? You see her walking on that tightrope? Something I would personally never do. Um... But you can see she does have a little thing here so that if she falls, she doesn't fall all the way and you just hope the whole thing works. But you trust, this is, she trusts herself and that cord. The question for the Christian is, what and who do you trust? Should you follow your heart? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When they tell you to follow your heart, it is a direct attack on the word of God. Now, some folk don't like me preaching this stuff because they like Disney so much. And I'm very sorry if you really like Disney. I used to like Disney too, right? But if I don't tell you the truth, it's on me. And the word and the truth, we are, it's too close to the second coming of Jesus for me to make you think you can continue to listen to the serpent in animated form. And think you will not have consequences. That's why the world is so lawless now. Matthew 15, 18 says this. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Can you follow your heart? This is what, these are the words of Jesus. And they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Where does it come from? The heart. Should you follow your heart? Romans 7 and verse 18 says this, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile, oh, sorry, for Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me, Paul says, that is in my flesh dwells what? No good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that's what I actually do. 
Look at Paul's summary statement, verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You want to know how much you need a savior? Go back and look at how good you've done on all your last five New Year's resolutions. Even when you have all the good intentions, you got the whole month of December, you're like, listen, I'll eat chocolate this month because next month I'm going to hit it. I'm going to be up in the gym. I'm going to be right. I'm going to get it right for summer. And eight days. Did you know that's all it lasts? The statistics show? Eight days is all that people last on their New Year's resolution. You're almost better off just not making one. Because as Paul said, the good that I would, I do not. But the evil, which I would not, that's what I do. It is inherent in us to fail God. And so if you trust yourself, you're in trouble. And this is prophetic ramifications. When we talked about Revelation, you talk about the robe that's placed on us. It, the, the robe of righteousness must be placed on the people of God because they cannot generate their own righteousness. And it goes back to the question. <clears throat> what must I do then to be saved? Spirit of Prophecy says this, Manuscript 2.18.93. This is a wonderful and important question. What must I do to be saved? There's nothing of any more value to any of us than this question. If we lose heaven, we lose everything. It is a terrible thing to lose eternal life. It is too expensive a business to sin. Because what's the payment for sin? And if you die, that means you gave up all of the ceaseless ages of eternity. You gave up streets of gold. You gave up a, 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 a house in the country and a, and, a, and a place in the city. You gave up walking with Jesus, flying with angels, swimming with dolphins. You gave up living at a time when, when the lion and the lamb lay down together. It's too expensive a business to live in sin. So let me tell you something as we go into this new year. If you have secret sin in your life, you ought to be asking God now for the power of the Holy Ghost to get that thing out of your life. Because we might not be able to see what you're watching on your phone or your iPad or in the privacy of your home, but God sees it. Acts 16, verse 27, going back to the story. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself. You see, that's what happens if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know how much he loves you, if you don't understand his love, you think the best thing you can do is live in sin and just die. That is the killing of yourself. But when you know the character of God, everything changes. When he, when he was confronted with the love of Christ through Paul and Silas, he put his sword away and took out bandages, began to wash their wounds. Repentance isn't just that you feel sorry for your sin. Repentance actually means, and we'll talk more about it in another sermon, it means a change of mind. He was a different person after he met them. That's before he accepted anything. That's before he was baptized, he changed. Look at this. Paul says, do thyself no harm. We are all here. And, he, and then he called for a light. He sprang in. He trembled. He fell down before, before, before Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? And look at verse 31. Here's your answer. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And thou shalt be saved. And what else? And thy house. I want you to get this. Salvation 101. Believe. Believe. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to give up smoking cigarettes. Not right away. You don't have to say, okay, once I give up smoking cigarettes or once I stop watching porn or once I stop doing this or that, then I can come and believe. I'm telling you, unless you believe first, you'll never give up that stuff. You've got to work on your belief. You've got to work on knowing God. You must turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because we are saved by grace through faith. No religion in the world has this. I, 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 I can't even, I don't even have the words to express the, the weight of that. That it is unique in all theology that you can't save yourself. That you can't flog yourself and get points with God, climb upstairs on your knees like Martin Luther saw. You can't pay penance. You can't go into enough confessional boxes. Nothing you can do can save yourself. You must believe in the redemptive power and the, and, 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 the, and the victorious power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says it like this, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? It's not by works, or else anybody could boast. We are all saved the exact same way. All of us. Romans 6, 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that deep? You get paid when you sin a, a paycheck of death. When you believe God, there is no wage. It's just a gift. Salvation then is having the mind to say, I'm going to stop working in my own strength and I am going to change and believe and accept the free gift of God in salvation. It is a liberating truth because you will look at yourself and how messed up you are. You'll look at your past, all the failures you've made. You'll look at all the times you stumbled and fell, all the times you failed God, failed your wife, failed your children, all the times you failed. You'll look at it and think, I'm not worthy of what God has for me. But once you come to the conclusion that you are never worthy, never going to be worthy, unless your worthiness, your righteousness came from Christ, and you start focusing on him. Because when you look into the perfect face of Christ, you become like him. By beholding, we become changed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't this powerful? Christ became sin. When he went to the cross, and that's why the Bible talks about, uh, makes the correlation back to the brazen serpent from the Old Testament that was lifted up. That represented sin. Sin was lifted up on the cross. It was crucified to the cross. Christ took our sin. He paid our penalty. And he did it so that we could have his righteousness. We must die to self. Self must be crucified. It must go on the cross where Christ was. It must die. And Christ then must live in us. I always use the analogy of driving a car. Many of us want to be in the driver's seat. In the, in the, on the road to salvation, you got to get out of the driver's seat. So what we do is we get in the passenger seat. And while we're in the passenger seat and Jesus is in the driver's seat, we keep gra grabbing the steering wheel and telling them how to turn and when to hit the brakes. 
So then as you get closer to Christ, you realize, let me get in the backseat so I can, so Jesus will just drive the car. But then you become a backseat driver trying to tell Jesus what to do. In order for you to be saved, you got to get locked up in the trunk. So that you can't mess with Jesus, because if you just let Jesus do what he does, my Bible tells me he is the author and the finisher of our faith, that he that has begun a good thing in you will see it through to its completion. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall do what? Live by faith. You know what the Bible says? The just shall live by faith. But it also says, a just man falls seven times, and rises every time. It's not a coincidence that those two verses are there. Why? Because it isn't that you fell that makes you lost. It's that you didn't have, you didn't trust God enough to believe he, you could get up and continue walking with him. That's why to just live by faith. Because even when we fail, we know that we must continue to move towards Christ. Gospel Worker, page 161, says this. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. Did y'all get that? The truth the devil does not want you to get is that you simply need to believe. And you need to stop fighting the fight of works and fight the fight of faith. Too many are fighting the fight of works. We're gritting our teeth and saying, okay, this year I'm just going to do better. I'm not going to watch that stuff no more. I'm not going to listen to that stuff no more. And the more you grit your teeth and focus on your sin, the more you become like your sin. But when you make a switch and you say, you know what? I'm going to fight the fight of faith. I am going to study the life of Christ. I'm going to stay in the word. I'm going to get to know Jesus. I'm going to have a prayer life. I'm going to spend time with him as if he was my friend. And I'm going to get to know the Lord. And all of a sudden, as you get close to Christ, the things of this world, they grow strangely dim. And it's much more effortless because you're not fighting the fight of works. You're fighting the fight of faith. Gospel Broker, page 161. If he, Satan, can control minds so that doubt and unbelief and darkness shall compose the experience of those who claim to be the children of God, he can overthrow them, he can overcome them with temptation. If you see yourself, Steps to Christ, page 31, if you see your sinfulness, do not wait to make yourself better. This is a lesson for somebody in here right now. If you see your sinfulness, do not wait to make yourself better. How many there are who think they are not good enough to come to Christ do you expect to become better through your own efforts? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do that, then ye may also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. She goes on and she says this. There is help for us only in God. We must not wait for stronger persuasions, for better opportunities, or for holier tempers. We can do nothing of ourselves. We must come to Christ just as we are. I want to make the invitation to you in the beginning of 2024, no matter how far from God you may have drifted, no matter how far from him you think you are, that you come to him just like you are. Because you can't clean yourself up. 
Only he can. But if you believe like the jailer believed, if you believe like the thief on the cross believed, if you believe like the woman caught in adultery believed, if you believe like the Samaritan woman believed, if you believe like they believe, salvation, victory over sin can be yours. The final slide is this one. Acts 16, 32 and 33 says this. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and look at this, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. He asked the question, what do I need to do to be saved? And he heard the word of God. And you know what? He changed. No longer the mean, evil warden punishing people. He washed the stripes of the people he once imprisoned. He was baptized. Him and his entire house were saved. What do you need to be, do to be saved this year? Spend your time in the word of God. Strengthen your belief. Understand what you believe. Spend time in God's word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in fellowship. Join us at prayer meeting. Take God and make him top priority. Make him more important than everything else. If you can do that, you, can, you will see God begin to transform you from the inside out. Too many Christians are transformed from the outside in, and it never gets all the way in. This year, make it a year that you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, and that you decide that you're going to walk with him no matter what. If that's your goal for this year, I want to ask you to just stand with me. This is a year that we're going to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, that as the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Paul's answer is that I'm going to believe, and I say, listen, this year, we are going to work on our faith. We're going to work to know Jesus better. We're going to work to trust him more. We're not going to work on ourselves. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to try and see how much willpower we can use to make sure that we don't uh, you know, watch too much TV. Instead, we're going to say, I'm going to replace that time with family Bible study and worship. I'm going to focus on getting to know him, and all of the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. That is the power of knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word. I thank you, Father God, for the story of the jailer and how it shows the power of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, Paul's response is believe. Salvation 101 is believe. Father God, help us this year. Lord, as the, as, the, as the father of the demoniac boy says in Mark chapter 9, Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. Let this be a year, Lord, where we take our doubt to Jesus Christ, where we grow in faith, where we come to know Jesus as our personal Savior and as our friend, and that we don't live in fear. Instead, Father God, we live in love and in power and with a sound mind. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.